Hello, it's Monday the 2nd of November. I'm Mike Duran on today's Guardian Daily. What lies ahead for democracy in Afghanistan? Life will continue for our people and, and hopefully democracy will survive in this country. And I can assure our people that uh, I'll be at the service of our people and promote the ideas of reform and change. Back home, can the government's Drug Advisory Council survive a string of resignations? There's a, a lot of ill feeling that the advice they give, which should be impartial, is used to political ends rather than strict policy ends. Former Met Police Chief Sir Ian Blair answers his critics. When Boris came in, he asked me specifically to do three things that were in his manifesto, and those three things were done within a matter of weeks. And we take a look at Disney's revamped Mickey Mouse. They know that they can't just appeal to, to Disney fans, they need to get the core gamers on board if they want to reach their goal of, of making him this cult action hero. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. But first, a news update and paper review with Bill Overton. It's the second day of flood warnings for Scotland. Strong winds and torrential rain yesterday trapped people in their cars on several main roads, which are still closed. People had to be rescued from their homes after a river broke its banks at Stonehaven and Grampian. Trains have also been cancelled. There are more talks in the postal dispute today. Both sides have been examining proposals from the TUC over the weekend. Royal Mail claimed that over a quarter of staff have been back to work, while the union claims overwhelming support for its strike action. An estimated 50 million letters are now held up. British Airways is threatened with a Christmas strike. There's to be a mass meeting of staff today to discuss a strike ballot. The airline wants to cut cabin crew staff on every flight and to freeze pay. The company is expected to announce heavy losses this week. It's World Pneumonia Day and the United Nations is warning the illness is the biggest cause of child deaths. The World Health Organization has designed a global plan to save the lives of 5 million children over the next five years, but it'll cost $39 billion. A European satellite lifted off in the early hours from a Russian cosmodrome. The satellite will make maps of how water moves around the globe. It'll test saline levels in oceans and help with weather forecasting. At the other end of the scale, it's 50 years since the opening of Britain's first major motorway, the M1. In celebration, a plaque will be unveiled at Watford Gap Services today. A look at the morning papers now. And the Home Secretary's written to us at The Guardian defending his sacking of his drugs advisor, Professor David Nutt. As we'll hear more fully in Guardian Daily, Alan Johnson says the professor was asked to go because he cannot be both an advisor and a campaigner against government policy. But our story also warns there may be a mass revolt over the sacking. The Times also puts the story on its front page. It reports other members of the Drugs Advisory Council will write to ministers saying they need to be able to speak freely about their research. The paper also found the Science Minister, Lord Drayson, hadn't been informed or consulted about the affair. The main story in The Telegraph suggests parliamentary expenses reform may be blocked by MPs. The leader of the Commons, Harriet Harman, says it wouldn't be fair to make MPs sack family members working in their offices. The Prime Minister is meeting the man proposing reform, Sir Christopher Kelly, today. But Harman also warns MPs may not accept cuts on expenses paid to London-area MPs buying second homes. The tabloids now, and the Express tells us how the gales washed away our Indian summer. The sun leads on what it calls a scandal at the Tower over bully beefeaters. It reports two male yeoman warders at the Tower of London have been suspended over allegations they bullied the first ever woman beefeater, Moira Cameron. On the sports back pages, both the Sun and the Mirror agree. As the Mirror puts it, time's up, Rafa. They quote the former Liverpool star Ronnie Whelan, who says the manager of the club has to go after the series of premiership losses. Whelan believes Benitez is obsessed by Europe 
and so took goal scorer Torres off the pitch in the defeat against Fulham to save him for the Champions League match this week. More on that story and all the day's news at guardian.co.uk. We start today with the withdrawal of Abdullah Abdullah from the Afghanistan elections and what that means for the country's democracy and its relationship with Western governments. They fear the runoff election would needlessly put the lives of UK and US soldiers at risk by having to police an election which may still hold no legitimacy. Dr Abdullah made a formal statement about his withdrawal saying that demands he made to ensure a fair election haven't been met. I did it with a lot of pain but at the same time with a lot of hopes towards the future because this will not be an end of anything. This will be a new beginning. Life will continue for our people and and hopefully democracy will survive in this country and I can assure our people that uh, I'll be at the service of our people and promote the ideas of reform and change for, for the betterment of the lives the life of the people of Afghanistan. So where does this leave the election process? President Hamid Karzai's campaign office has said that it wants the runoff election to take place, but will respect any decision that constitutional authorities take. To discuss the difficulties of Dr Abdullah's withdrawal, The Guardian's John Boone is in Kabul. Well, even though he's withdrawn and there's now only one person in contention for the runoff vote, which did not happen on Saturday, both the Independent Election Commission in Afghanistan and also the Karzai campaign have both said the show should go on regardless and that there is no other constitutional mechanism by which to choose a president. Ultimately, the leader of this country has to be elected by Afghan voters. Now, almost no one thinks this is actually going to happen, in large part because the international community, particularly the UK and the US have really no appetite for putting their soldiers in harm's way to protect a runoff vote which would be a one-horse race which would in all likelihood attract an insignificant level of turnout both because of the ongoing Taliban threats but also because there would only be one person in contention for the election. So the problem here is how the international community can persuade the Afghans to abandon this attempt, and then after that, how to ensure that if Mr. Karzai is essentially reappointed as president without having fulfilled the constitutional demands that he should get more than 50% of the vote in a free and fair election, how he can be made to be legitimate. Despite, John, what you say about the opposition to Karzai's legitimacy in the election, Hillary Clinton has in fact said that Dr Abdullah's withdrawal will not invalidate the vote or the election. I think that it is his decision to make. Whatever went into uh, uh, that determination is obviously uh, his choice. Uh, But I do not think it affects the legitimacy. Uh, There have been other uh, situations in our own country as well as around the world where in a runoff uh, 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 election, one of the parties decides for whatever reason that they're not going to go on. Um, I do not think that that in any way affects legitimacy. And I, I would just add that when President Karzai accepted the second round without knowing what the consequences and outcome would be, that bestowed legitimacy from that moment forward. And Dr. Abdullah's decision does not in any way take away from that. 
Hillary Clinton there standing by the process as is in Afghanistan. Do you think this is a credible position for her to take? I think what Hillary Clinton is doing is preparing the ground for the argument to be made that Mr. Karzai can be reappointed as president on the basis that in the first round he got the most number of votes, that you can make the case that because Abdullah has effectively withdrawn from the race, that the one candidate left in is inevitably going to win, and that there's therefore no um, logical reason to go ahead with the, the vote itself. Now, the question will be, how many people will that convince? It's unlikely, I think, to convince most of Dr. Abdullah's supporters, um, and there will be this constant question mark over whether um, Mr. Karzai is a legitimate president, if indeed he is reappointed. The Guardian's John Boone reporting from Kabul. Elsewhere on the Guardian website today... Hello, I'm James Dart from guardian.co.uk slash sport. And on the site today, you will be able to download the latest edition of the Football Weekly podcast, hosted by James Richardson, reflecting on all the weekend's uh, football action around Europe. As well as that, you'll be able to read all of the latest European football blogs from our team of writers, uh, including Sid Lowe on La Liga, Paolo Bandini on Serie A, and Raphael Honigstein on the Bundesliga. And also we'll have news from, from America, where a bat, of all things, invaded an NBA court during a, a match on Halloween. Uh, that'll all be on guardian.co.uk slash sport throughout the day. Now, we ask, what is the point in having government advisers on drugs when their advice is ignored? The question follows a weekend which has seen two senior advisers quit their post in protest at the Home Secretary Alan Johnson's sacking of his chief drugs advisor, Professor David Nutt. He accused ministers of distorting the scientific evidence on cannabis. The Guardian's Sam Jones is here. Sam, this is turning into a huge mess for the government, isn't it? In a word, yes. And obviously it all kicked off at the tail end of last week when Alan Johnson decided that he had to take a stand following some comments that had been made by um, Professor David Nutt, who, as he said, is the chairman of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. Um, in those comments, which were actually made originally in July, Professor Nutt had said that the government had perhaps played politics a bit much with the reclassification of cannabis. And he wanted to stress that the evidence we have so far would argue that cannabis is actually less damaging than alcohol and tobacco. The Home Secretary thought these remarks were completely unacceptable and he asked Professor Nutt to step down, which he did on Friday. But over the weekend, we've seen two high-profile resignations from the council and it looks like we've got an open revolt in the council who are planning perhaps a mass resignation in protest at the treatment of their former chair. But when the Home Secretary, Alan Johnson, says his advisers shouldn't cross the line into politics, he does have a point, doesn't he? Scientists should talk as scientists and not as legislators. Of course, there, there has to be a division. Scientists have to advise and uh, government ministers have to make policy. But I think there's a, a lot of ill feeling uh, within the council that the advice they give, which, as you say, should be independent, should be impartial, is used to political ends rather than strict policy ends. So what's going to happen next? Can the council, the Drugs Council, survive in its present form? Uh, if you listen to Professor David Nutt, he says no. Basically, the council's got no future, he, uh, he actually told us today. Uh, it can't continue the way it is. And we understand that perhaps at a meeting to be held Monday week, uh, we might see a mass resignation in protest at what's happened to Professor Nutt. There's, there's a lot of anger out there. Unless they get the reassurance and clarification on their position that they want. They'd want that and they'd possibly also want the uh, Home Secretary to give Professor Nutt his old job back. Whether that will happen, who can tell? OK, where does this leave the government policy on drugs? If people see the law as foolish, they're going to ignore it, aren't they? 
I think a lot of people would choose to ignore the law anyway, regardless of how it's actually made. I would go walk down the street of any big town on a Saturday night would suggest as much. But yes, if there are mixed messages and words of, of, a, of an ugly nature being traded between the Home Secretary and his chief drugs advisor, then yes, it does, it does send mixed messages. The Guardian, Sam Jones. Next, former Metropolitan Police Commissioner Sir Ian Blair has hit back at his critics more than a year after being forced out of his job. In his new book, Policing Controversy, Sir Ian describes life at Scotland Yard during his four years as Britain's top policeman. During that tenure, he oversaw the London bombings on July the 7th of 2005 and the shooting of Jean-Charles de Menezes, an incident of which he says there aren't many days when he doesn't think about it. The Guardian's Stephen Moss spoke to Sir Ian and started by asking him why he thinks the London Mayor Boris Johnson gave him the push. As I see it, it was a way of stamping his authority on the mayoralty. It was about saying, I am in charge. Did you... um? Do you think you were, in a way, because you were you were seen as being close to New Labour? Do you think that gave the Tory press and Boris, you know, a reason to, to get at you? I mean, do you yeah, do you, I, I'm sure. Do you regret getting well, close to New Labour or appearing to be close I, to New Labour? I don't quite understand this point because I was the deputy commissioner and the commissioner for you know, almost ten years, during which the party in power was the Labour Party. They had the political mandate. When Boris came in, he asked me specifically to do three things that were in his manifesto, and those three things were done within a matter of weeks. And I didn't see any reports of being complaints about being too close to the Conservatives. You have, I mean, the police are not the politicians. It is the politicians who determine the overall policy-making framework. And if you have an overall policy framework, which is for ten years with one set of people in power, you are bound to be close. Inevitably, your, your tenure in office is going to be linked to the, the killing of Jean-Charles mm-hmm. de Menez. It's, it's gripping in the book, actually, your account, but it did give people the ammunition throughout to, yeah. to, to get rid of you. I mean, there's a yeah, direct I, link between that and everything that follows. Yeah, that. and I also feel very strongly that that inquiry lasted such an absurd amount of time that it allowed that kind of cloud just to hang there. And I feel very strongly, as you'll see, that the decision to prosecute the Office of Commissioner on the Health and Safety Grounds was just nonsensical. And all that did was delay the inquest, which is where this should properly have been dealt with. I, I cannot understand how it could have taken the IPCC two years to investigate a few who knew what when in a very short period of time. It just seemed endless and, to some degree, pointless. Why, why pointless? Well, I don't mean the inquiry into the death of John Charles de Menezes, but it must have been pretty obvious fairly shortly after they began the investigation about who knew what when that actually we didn't know. I presume the family have seen the extract and they've been rather upset by the way you deal with them. Um, with, with the shooting. And you, and you do seem to, you know, bend over backwards to, to support the view of the armed officers, the, the, the evidence they gave that, um, you know, Dimenezes was coming towards them in a threatening way, even though the, the jury didn't seem I to accept, accept that. that. And I do, I do make that clear in the book. It's just, I think it is a long experience of firearms officers, many of whom I've met and served with, that it is, I'm quite clear that 
there's nothing to suggest that they would have carried out that action unless they were absolutely persuaded that they were facing immediate danger. Stephen Moss talking to Sir Ian Blair, whose book Policing Controversy is out today, priced £20. In other news, more than 20 disabled American veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan will be recovering today after taking part in yesterday's New York Marathon. But the same group, plus their British counterparts, will be refused entrance into the London Marathon next April. The reason? They used the wrong type of wheelchair. Marathon officials have safety concerns with the cycle type of chair. But as one US soldier says, hearing people cheer for me really helps with the healing process. And that is being denied to his British comrades. With more, The Guardian's Glenn Austin Anderson. I was uh, in Ramadi back in 2004 um, in the back of an open-top Hummer, and as we rounded a corner, someone pushed a button, blew up a station wagon packed full of C4 and ball bearings. I took traumatic injury to the leg after being blown out, or while being blown out of the vehicle, and actually lost my leg due to um, infection. I've had multiple problems, and I've lost six more inches since the initial amputation. I was injured in the first battle of Fallujah in Iraq on uh, April 13th of 2004. Essentially, I was in an attack. We got ambushed. I was in a, what they call an AAV, amphibious assault vehicle. It's a tracked vehicle. And I took an RPG from my back left side. And um, uh, basically, it just, it's just soft tissue injury. I still have my leg, but it um, shredded everything from my rear end down to the back of my knee. My complete loss of my hamstring was just blown off. There he goes. He's off. You know, as soon as I got on one, it was everything that I thought it was going to be. It brought back my spirit of competition. You know, that just general overall feeling of uh, health and spirituality that you get from being able to compete in athletic sports again. It was, it was huge for me. It's, uh, it, it means a lot. It really does. It helps the person feel a lot more normal than he would normally feel. It really helps me uh, get back into being an athlete. You know, I'm a pretty athletic guy. I've been one before I got shot, and it just... You know, it helps you to, to get back into to doing what you love. The Freedom Team had hoped to travel to the UK to participate in the London Marathon alongside British wounded soldiers. The race organizers recently told the group that only pushroom wheelchairs and not hand cycles would be allowed on the course. Well, I can't do a pushroom because of my injury. The reason being is I am not a paraplegic, therefore I can't tie my legs in a knot and sit on them for two hours. I, I have uh, one working leg and one leg that's missing, and I just can't sit on my knees for that long and do the pushroom. But the, uh, the hand crank enables me to actually participate in the race. For me to contort my legs into that uh, pushroom position, just because of my injury, is not going to allow me to contort my lower body and hold it in that position. I have a lot of uh, pride in, in, in America. I have a lot of pride in what I do. And, and to see the people cheer for me on the side of the roads and tell me, don't quit, don't quit, it, it, it really helps with the healing process of, of, of not having a leg. And, and I, I actually feel for the British soldiers not to be able to experience that. Army Staff Sergeant John Walding ending that report by Glenn Austin Anderson. On a lighter note now, Mickey Mouse, Walt Disney's most treasured creation, has been brought, maybe kicking and screaming, though I can't say for sure what goes on in the head of a cartoon mouse, into the 21st century. More than 80 years since he first appeared, Mickey, to his friend, has had a makeover to make his debut in a new video game. 
Our media business correspondent Katie Allen is here to describe for us the revamped Mr Mouse. Mickey's wearing the same outfit, but what he's... Oh, it actually looks like he's not a modern Mickey. He's modernised in that he's 3D, but he's taken back to what they call the rubber hose Mickey. So if you think of a black rubber hose, he's got very rounded arms, very rounded legs. But as a whole, he's been taken from the 2D character that Walt Disney created in the 1920s and made into a 3D computer game character. So this is for a a computer game rather than just because Mickey needs a makeover because he's a bit too twee, for example. No, so this comes out of Disney Interactive Studios, which is the computer gaming part of the Walt Disney Company. Um, They decided when um, a new head of gaming came in a few years ago that Disney had never really made much use of Mickey in computer games. He's never had a lead role. And so all development of Mickey-related games was frozen until they found something worthy of of this world-famous mouse. And um, it's still in the works. It's coming out next year. But he's been made over for a game on the um, Nintendo's Wii console. And what can we expect in the video game? Is it a reenactment of Steamboat Willie or will he be facing more contemporary situations? So it's nothing like Steamboat Willie and Toontown. And what I was told was, you know, don't think of this as Mickey's got a problem. And the problem is he's got to work out how to wash Pluto, the dog. This is um, Keeping the drug dealers out of Disneyland. Not quite, but Mickey's thrust into this world called Cartoon Wasteland, where all of Walt Disney's forgotten characters are, are languishing and living in this limbo world where they're waiting for their moment to come again. So it's sort of a modern celebrity tale of A-listers and B-listers, and in this world, um, A-list Mickey bumps into B-list Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, which who was in fact Disney's um, Walt Disney's first um, famous character back in 1927, until he lost the rights to him. And Oswald lives in this world, is quite happy. Over the years, though, he notices that in the real world, Mickey's fame is growing, starts to resent Mickey. Mickey, by some accident, throws Oswald's world into turmoil, gets thrown into Oswald's world. There's confrontations, and Mickey is forced to find and confront all these characters he'd forgotten, friends he'd left behind. This is for very young kids, I take it. No, this is the idea is um, core gamers. What they want to do is turn Mickey into a sort of Mario or Sonic the Hedgehog. That I mean, they're, they're pitching as eight to eighty, um, but they know that they can't just appeal to to Disney fans. They need to get the core gamers on board if they want to reach their goal of of making him this cult action hero. What teenagers going for Mickey Mouse? It's unlikely, isn't it? I think possibly because it's a Nintendo Wii game and the Nintendo Wii does have quite wide appeal because of the sort of movement element to it and, and, and the team element that you can play with your friends. Um, but yeah, it's, it's yet to come out and I think it is a tall order and it's Disney aficionados, of course they'll be on board, it's you know, the cult Disney character but we'll see, maybe that's why they've made him a darker Mickey in a darker world. Katie Allen and pictures of the new Mickey can be found online at guardian.co.uk slash business. And that's it for today's Guardian Daily. Producing today were Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe. I'm Mike Duran. Thanks for listening.